Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we pick a terrific new book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. And this week I'm very happy to say we have Stephen Asma on the show, and we'll be talking about his very provocative new book, Against Fairness. As I told Stephen in the uh, pre-interview, I looked at the title of this book and I said, I have to read this because it's a book that... Um, speaks to me on kind of a personal level because I've been in the pursuit of fairness all my life and I have to say that I've failed on almost every occasion which I've pursued it and this is bothersome to me and I imagine it's bothersome to a lot of people and Stephen gets to the heart of that and we'll discuss that during the interview. So uh, Stephen, welcome to the show. Hi Marshall, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, Could you begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a professor of philosophy at Columbia College in Chicago, and uh, I have the good fortune of being able to sort of teach a variety of different areas. Uh, My own PhD was in the philosophy of biology, but when I got my job at Columbia College, um, it's basically an art school, so I I couldn't do a lot of my own philosophy of biology material. And I I ventured, this was about 20 years ago, I ventured into other areas like philosophy and film and philosophy of art. And so I'm kind of freewheeling. uh, I'm either a polymath or a a know-nothing. I hope it's the (laughs) former and not the latter. Um, But then I I also had a longstanding interest in um, Buddhism and Throughout my career, I've done sort of these, uh, I'll sort of spend a few years focusing on Buddhism, like I went and lived in Cambodia for a while, and I've lived in China. And so I'm interested in sort of, I'm not sure how all this comes together, but I'm thinking that, you know, that there more and more as neuroscience develops, there are sort of interesting connections between philosophy of mind and Buddhism. And so that's kind of the area that I'm moving towards. But that's kind of, that's sort of a a, a nutshell version of my my philosophical interests. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it is the case. I know this from personal experience, too, that when you study something like Buddhism, you come to look at the entire Western experience in a different way. Yeah, it's true. And uh, the, the the ideas are so radically different from the sort of Western monotheisms that, that even if you're an atheist or secular-minded, you've been shaped by. Uh, and then when you go and live in the countries, too, it also gives you another sort of lens on the West. So I've been very um, – I'm very thankful that I've had those experiences. So, Stephen, could you uh, tell us why you wrote Against Fairness? What were you trying to accomplish or teach? Well, I had um, I had finished writing a book um, called "Why I'm a Buddhist," um, and it was just a, a kind of a primer for Westerners who are trying to incorporate the ideas without sort of going into a monastery or into a cave. And so, I'd been thinking a lot about sort of the ethical, saintly ideals of Buddhism. Um, and then, uh, then I became a parent, and uh, <laughs> I had a son, and my my thinking began to change. Like, uh, well, immediately you have sort of new emotion. I think a parent will recognize this, but you 
you really feel quite different. It's almost like you have new organs growing in your body because you have things at stake that you never really uh, had before. You have a whole perspective shift that occurs. So it's kind of an existential um, crisis in a way for anybody who becomes a parent. And if you're a philosopher, you probably overthink it. So I was doing that. And, uh, and, That's what uh, we're paid for, isn't right, it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I realized at some point, um, it actually came to me when I was, I was doing a, a conference panel discussion with um, – uh, there was a priest on one side of me and and a, actually a revolutionary communist on the other and and they were both sort of articulating the traditional egalitarian view that you know ethics is um, completely sacrificing one's own interest um, and uh, approaching the world in a thoroughly unbiased and impartial way and I it slowly dawned on me that like now that I was a father that I would just, if I had to, I would just choke these people to death if it meant extending my son's life by a few days, like, the, you know, just in a kind of philosophy uh, thought experiment. And I realized, my God, you know, what, what does this do to my vision of the good life and ethics? And so I started to think about um, how do we reconcile very intense um, favoritistic, you know, if I can use this word, partial um, biased values and bonds with family members and friends, how do we reconcile all that with the egalitarian ideals? And then I, I read this wonderful quick story in Confucius where he says, um, Confucius goes to this outlying region and the local politician comes in and he's trying to impress Confucius and he says, uh, you know, we're so virtuous around here that if a father steals a sheep, the son will give evidence against him in the court, you know. And Confucius thinks about this, and his response is, well, you know, where I come from, the the son shields the father, and the father shields the son, and there's virtue in that. And so I took this to be an interesting challenge, like how do we um, reconcile all, the, all these egalitarian ideals of the West with these sort of devotions of the heart? And that's what got me off uh, on the path of writing the book. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very controversial topic, I mean, because you are going against the grain of uh, almost all political philosophy, which isn't to say there aren't parts of our uh, political system that don't include an allowance for favoritism. But I want to ask you before we talk about the book, you mentioned that you were in discussions with people, some heated ones. How's it been received? Yeah, it's been, it's obviously, you know, you write a book with this title, it's controversial. And then, you know, I've written a controversial book, so I can't be entirely <laughs> surprised when, when, when there's controversy, I shouldn't be surprised. But, but I have been a little uh, taken aback by um, the vitriolic response that some people have have brought like i think if you read the book you'll find that it's fairly even though it's controversial i think my tone is fairly measured oh, it's yeah. a relatively gentle book um but the response of two two there's sort of been two responses that have surprised me one has been professional philosophers who have been almost um out of their minds irritated uh, because I think they um, have been raised on a steady diet of sort of rational utilitarianism, and this is this is a very threatening sort of um, counter tradition. And then the other thing that's kind of bothered me a little bit is that people have have confused my position with a pro selfish position. Mm -hmm. 
which is not at all my position. And I argue very, I think, uh, strongly throughout the book that I'm against kind of ridiculous Ayn Rand individualism, selfish alternative to egalitarianism that's out there. That's not my position. I argue very much against that. I think that's a deep confusion in the Western mind, which has a false dichotomy. You're either for the common good or you're for yourself. Mm -hmm. And my book takes the middle position that's missing in the West, which is basically like the family, and then tries to work in either direction, up Mm -hmm. towards the social contract and down towards the individual. But I am not... Uh, pro-selfishness, and I, I just can't convince people, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what I say, for some reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think you're right, and it comes out in the book, that we, in the West, do have these dichotomies, which are so basic to our way of seeing the world that we can't see around them. So, for example, when I, you know, when I read about Buddhism and talk to people about Buddhism, you know, one of the things that Buddhists grapple with is an attempt to be, uh, to reach a kind of equanimity, but not be indifferent. Right, and I think to the Western mind, equanimity and indifference are the same things. Yes, I agree. That's and, a common confusion, and they just can't they they can't wrap their mind around how these two ideas um, could be different. And I, mean, I think similarly with uh, fairness and a kind of favoritism that we just uh, we have this way of looking at the world and we can't can't get around it. So let's talk a little bit about the substance of the book. One of the things you point out in an early chapter is, is that we're sort of wired for favoritism. Right. Yeah, this is, um, I think there's been great work done on uh, effective neuroscience, which is basically emotional neuroscience in the last 20 years. And I've had the very good fortune of being able to work with one of the founders of that um, discipline, uh, Dr. Yak Pangsep. And what he and others have done is they've studied animal brains. Um, and some of this stuff has been really nicely correlated with psycho- psychology studies on human beings, too. And what, what they've been looking at is, okay, how do our emotions work? Um, and philosophers have kind of ignored the emotions for the, for the last few centuries. <laughs> um, and they, they haven't quite known what to do with them. And it's kind of been um, exciting for me to look at not just that you know animals have uh, fight or flight kinds of mechanisms. We all know, know that. But it's kind of amazing the way in which all mammals, um, especially social mammals like other primates uh, and ourselves, share what's called a, a care system. And this is the idea um, that mammals need to fasten onto each other uh, very early in life. You need to forge a strong bond because basically uh, mammal mothers spend a lot of time raising their young. This is quite different from obviously reptiles where you just have a whole litter and let it go and a lot of them will die, but a few of them will make it. In mammals, you have to have this intensive sort of bonding experience. Well, it turns out that we know a lot about how that works in mammals and it turns out to be the same system in human beings, namely the, the mother and the infant, their, their systems are flooded with a neurotransmitter and hormone called oxytocin and also natural opioids. And so I look at this in the book, and we, you find that this cements people together. This is why those early years of childhood are really important. You have to have a lot of contact with the caregiver. You know, these are, th- these are reasons why primates need touch so strongly. If you fail to have these strong bonding experiences early on, you can actually develop uh, F, um, attachment disorders. And so we have a lot of um, data coming in from some of these poor kids who have um, lived the early part of their lives in um, 
uh, basically uh, in uh, Eastern European uh, uh, orphanages mm -hmm. where they've not had a lot of uh, physical contact. And as a result of it, when they have experiences later in life, let's say they get adopted after age three or something, they have trouble bonding with their caregivers. And we've been able to test that actually this oxytocin uh, flood that occurs, which creates a kind of default bonding, uh, sparks again whenever you're with your loved ones later in life. So it seems to set up pro-social emotions. And if you have attachment disorders, you actually don't get this burst of opioids and oxytocin. Now, what all this means is not that favoritism is automatically good, and that's why I'm in favor of it. I'm simply saying this is how we ended up getting favorites in the, in the first place. These are our unchosen you know, tribes. These are the families we're born into, and th this is our original sort of favorite group. As we get older, of course, we have rationality, and human beings are remarkably promiscuous with their affection, mm -hmm. and we can have larger and wider circles of favorites, and all, that's all to the good. So my argument is not just, okay, we, this is natural, therefore it's good. My argument is more like, well, the analogy would be something like uh, breastfeeding. Uh, breastfeeding is also natural. You don't have to do it, but here are the reasons why breastfeeding is actually healthy for the offspring. So then I try to articulate in the, in the remainder of the book why I think favoritism is also a virtue and why it contributes to the good life in addition to also being set up by biology. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, fairness itself as an idea. Where do we get this idea? I know I was going to give the uh, example of my son, uh, who and my daughter, I suppose, they're four and five now. And I can tell you that they love the word fairness. They love to say, that's not fair. They never say right. that's fair. They say that's <laughs> not fair. But when I hear them say it, I immediately translate it as, I'm envious. I want right. what he or she has. They don't that's really understand treating equals equally. But they know to say, they know just to say that something is not fair and that it will get our attention. So maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of philosophically where we get this notion, how it became so embedded in our consciousness. Yeah, I, I also, I have a son who uses this regularly, and you're right, it's always in the negative. Yeah. That's, that's unfair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he never recognizes the, the positive. Um, yeah, yeah uh, the, one of the things I do look at in the book is um, – the psychological underpinnings of our um, obsession with fairness. And I do think envy is one of those things. Now, other people have noticed this. I, I, as a philosopher, I'm kind of interested in this technique. You know, this was Nietzsche was very good at, Frederick Nietzsche was very good at this. He would sort of take a high-minded moral principle and then he could show that it had these sort of, uh, sort of ignoble <laughs> or rather less noble emotional um, engines underneath them. And I think envy does drive our interests uh, in fairness, and we masquerade it as a, as a principle. I actually think the idea cuts in two different directions, as I think most people recognize. There's a kind of conservative and a liberal version of it. Um, the liberal version of fairness is, is equality. If we can have an equality of opportunity or um, perhaps more um, controversial inequality of outcomes where everybody gets the same. On the conservative side, they'll use the, the language of fairness to mean uh, a kind of mer meritocracy. It, uh, in other words, uh, the winner gets the spoils, the rewards go to the winner. So whoever is best gets the most, and that's fair. And these two notions of fairness, of course, cancel each other out, or at mm -hmm. least, you know, come in very strong. Uh, 
you know, conflict with each other. So part, part of me is, part of the book is sort of isolating this. Others have done this as well. And I think as a philosopher, it's fairly interesting to notice that these probably can't be reconciled in any easy way. And we frequently forget that. I think the reason why we ended up with fairness as our reigning ideology is, one, these these emotional aspects of envy um, were tied to sort of parenting techniques. I, I look at this a little bit in the book. Uh, sort of in the 19th century in the United States, you look at parenting uh, guides and they, they're clearly, they're very stoic. They are suggesting to parents that you get your child to reconcile him or herself to the injustices of the world early on Mm -hmm. so they can handle it because life is not fair life is a competition (laughs) life is hard and they need to be able to um sort of uh accommodate those ugly truths in the 20th century particularly after you get more and more prosperity after the second world war you see parenting guides are suggesting make sure if you buy something for Sally, you also buy something of equal value for Jimmy mm-hmm. so that your son and daughter will feel that they are equally loved and that's good parenting. So that's an interesting way in which um, these notions of envy and fairness have been fostered in a way by our, our parenting philosophies that have changed. Deeper than that, I think, you have the level – of change that's been happening ever since the Enlightenment, which is uh, ethics has been, you know, if you look at the Enlightenment, uh, you realize that uh, there was all this amazing progress made by uh, science. You you know, Newton uh, figures out a few laws of nature that apply uniformly to everything. The ethicists of the day, people like Kant, um, Immanuel Kant, and then uh, on the other side, even David Hume, we're all trying to put ethics on the same mathematical, precise, and universal footing that the science, the physical sciences had achieved. So what they did is they, they thought of ethics as laws and, as, and that they, they would apply to everyone equally. And this, I think, is the kind of thinking about ethics that folded into and it's it's sort of ultimate expression is is utilitarianism, which is that there is our our goal is to maximize the greatest good for the greatest number, the greatest majority. Mm-hmm. And this notion of ethics works great for institutions and large nation states. But my book is trying to isolate what fell out of that system as that pr- progressed. A whole lot of really good stuff fell by the wayside. And so that's why these are some of the reasons why I think we ended up with an ideology of fairness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is very compelling to me. I know that after the Enlightenment, and once we decided that we would hew by the notion that all men and women, all people were created equal, whatever the origins of that, then a lot of things, if you're thinking logically, uh, sort of follow necessarily. And I think a lot of these things got us in trouble. Uh, because right. the facts on the ground are that people are not made equal, that they are not equal in many ways, and that is both objectively and subjectively. That's something you point out in the book. Uh, and so it's it's uh, there's a sort of dissonance between what we're asked to believe and act upon and what we see in the world. And I think this causes people, as I said in the pre-interview, it causes them a lot of stress. Yeah, I think that's right. You, you were raised on this diet of, I call it in the book, uh, nemocentrism, which means like the view from nowhere. You're supposed to take yourself out of the equation and your loved ones and your family, and then you ask, well, what's the good? And that's a notion of the good that's designed to um, 
handle or manage uh, life with strangers. Uh, so yeah. I understand why it's there, but really we don't live in that world. We don't live in the nemocentric world. I live in a family where I'm much more devoted to these people who are infinitely more important to me than strangers living on the other side of the planet. Now, all of our ethical education, though, suggests either it's either if you look at it from utilitarianism in terms of the secular version, where we have to think of everyone equally, or you look at the religious version, which is the, the sort of ethical saint. Uh, agape, love everyone equally, whether it's Jesus or it's Gandhi, in both those traditions, the notion of the good is always um, totally unbiased. In fact, uh, Gandhi in his autobiography says, um, uh, make sure you don't love anybody too much, any any particular person. Um, you should avoid biased uh, love and loyalty to family members because that will get in the way of this universal love which is required of you. And I'm I'm in agreement with uh, George Orwell who who read that autobiography and thought, oh man, this is uh, Gandhi has missed something important about being a human. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's and I I'm just really in agreement with that. You being a human being means that you are so devoted to your child or your siblings or your friend that you are willing in some sense to um to be uh, well to, to to kill and die for them to put it like really in a stark manner that's mm-hmm. sort of the most, that's the strongest permutation of it but surely that that's there and that's vying that's the world we're living in mm-hmm. and that's vying with this very um utilitarian calculus model of costs and benefits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think there are ample examples in uh, recent history, recent meaning the last few hundred years, of the attempt to, uh, I guess, uh, install or to uh, bring into practice this idea of fairness, this radical fairness uh, in social systems, and the one that comes to mind, but only because I know a lot about it, is the Soviet Union itself. I mean, the quote you just read from Gandhi, Marx could have said that. Yeah. I mean, because he believed that, uh, you know, in the coming really egalitarian world, that all of these particular attachments to family, that is to parents and to siblings and to cousins, and also to things like uh, place and schools and nations, and they would just fall by the wayside. That They were just historical creations, and they were just going to go away. Right. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work. But that there were people work. who were so enthused about it that they really tried to make it work. Right. And, and, and it was this utopianism, I mean, in the fullest sense, that led to, I mean, it had really horrible results. Not to mention the fact it confused the heck out of millions of people in the Soviet Union for a long time. I know many of them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, would, um, I, I would add to that the similar story, of course, um, in East Asia and in Southeast Asia. My own experience um, was uh, I, I lived in uh, Cambodia for a while. Every person I met and became friends with, of course, had been affected by the Khmer Rouge period and had lost loved ones. It's interesting that Paul Pot himself also thought, well, okay, he, he looked at Mao as an interesting um, kind of an ideal but he he when they they went to china and they said well we're going to do your social experiment on the fast track we're going to even even more and of course the notion of year zero you know in the mid-70s in cambodia was uh, pol pot and the khmer rouge are going to basically um eliminate 
um, filial by filial piety and family bias by destroying the family. So Pol Pot destroyed, you know, not just Buddhism and religion and also cities, but also hit one of his main targets was the, the sort of loyalty that family members would have to each other. This would violate the kind of higher he was looking for in terms of the party. And so I, I agree. There's a kind of radical egalitarianism in um, some of these social experiments that I think is, in fact, highly dangerous. And it, it hasn't worked, but it, it's caused a tremendous amount of misery and bloodshed in the process. Mm-hmm. If you look at, at Maoist China, Mao did some wonderful things. I'm not just sort of um, ideologically you know, opposed. He, in some ways, the um, Great Leap Forward was um, you know, a way in which uh, women's rights, you know, um, came came on in in a way that previously China you know didn't recognize, and so there's that. But he also went after Confucianism hard because Confucianism, uh, while also being hierarchical, bases ethics on the family. It's basically filial piety that the Chinese call the Shao. And if um, and he saw it as a threat, and and it was a threat to his idea of radical leveling. My book is very much pro filial piety. I even look at the East as a kind of example of what would it be like if you built an ethics around the family and then worked in these other directions. Now, a lot of people have, you know, are, because we have a lot of anti-China propaganda in the West that a lot of people think, oh, you know, you're going to end up with just uh, tyranny um, and hierarchy. And I'm, I'm trying to suggest that there's all kinds of other virtues to that system that we should at least pay more attention to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before we get to those virtues, I want to bring the discussion a little bit closer to home for those American listeners. Some of the programs that are currently being, I don't know if they're being pushed or promoted or something, uh, are explicitly, um, defended in the name of fairness and are implicitly against any form of what is usually called sort of bias or prejudice, but really, uh, it's a kind of, um, uh, you know, it's a kind of particular attachment. And I'm thinking of just, you know, just a couple of them is, you know, the war against nepotism. We all agree nepotism is bad. And then also things such as, uh, you know, equality between large groups that have heretofore been um, unequal things like affirmative action. Could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, I I think um, nepotism gets a bad rap. Uh, and I I think what's happened is we've confused nepotism with corruption. So whenever it comes up, people assume, oh, it's automatically people giving positions to people that they that that can't work the job or can't do the job. I try to point out that actually, in, in point of fact, frequently uh, nepotism can go hand in hand with qualified hiring. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's been there the, if you look at nepotism in terms of uh the workplace it's sort of an interesting story there were a lot of like in the 50s there was a lot of and in the, even in the 60s there was a lot of nepotistic hiring in in, in companies and hu- some huge percentage it's like 85% of american companies are family owned so it's it's an interesting story then um nepotism was then in the uh 70s, there were a lot of anti-nepotism policies that came out. And as a result of this, women suffered terribly because they had been hired. And when they were, when the nepotistic, 
you know, violations had been rooted out and the culprits fired, it was frequently women who had not been at the company as long as their partners mm-hmm. um, and uh, were, you know, if not further along in their careers and they lost their jobs. Then there were a bunch of countersuits against nepotism uh, in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s. And now the current state of affairs is that companies basically are, because of this sort of legalistic and expensive uh, um, back and forth on nepotism, there's a kind of don't ask, don't tell nepotism attitude mm-hmm. in the American workplace. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting um, about that is I think there's a tradition of really healthy nepotism that a lot of people don't notice. Um, the people on the left in particular seem to be bothered by nepotism, at, whereas in the book I point out that um, actually minority groups um, benefit tremendously from nepotistic practices or in-group ethics. And so I look at cases like um, the civil rights movement or um, I look at Mexican-American nepotistic groups that move across the border. Um, in, and so they have sort of locations in the United States, like in Chicago, and sort of a home base. And relatives, family and friend, are basically moving resources back and forth across the border mm-hmm. and family. And this is, has been extremely positive for them, as it is for all immigrants. This, the same is true of Italian-Americans, Chinese-Americans. You, you work in a world that preferences your own and slowly you build up um, resources and wealth. Um, so my argument is, you know, the nepotism is at work in ways that we would, would, if we, you know, allowed ourselves to look at it objectively, we would recognize as healthy and even uh, ethical. In cases like affirmative action, I think it's interesting. W- which one is more fair? Is it more fair to now privilege or treat preferentially groups that had previously been discriminated against? Or is it more fair to take a completely colorblind view and not think about race, for example, at all? That's currently the debate that's happening Mm -hmm. right now as the Supreme Court looks at affirmative action again. And um, my argument is, well, fairness isn't going to solve that problem. Fairness is is an anemic concept. And when we bring it to bear... It cuts in all directions. It really doesn't help us navigate that issue. My claim is we should give up notions of fairness and think more about social justice in ways that you know our own tradition has um, promoted in the past. You know, I, I I think the Aristotelian notions of social justice are still really full blooded, and we could bring back some of these ideas. Um, in the case of affirmative action, I think you can argue for affirmative action um, on very good uh, social health um, rationales. Uh, is it better for the country for certain um, minority groups to be treated preferentially? It might be. Um, I, I don't think fairness helps us assess that. Is it better to get, um, uh, let's say, people of um, African descent into universities um, where they previously might have been um, kept out. I think the argument is yes, you can raise all kinds of diversity issues here within the campus that will then basically flood out into the larger world. This is healthy and good for all of the people, all the races that are sort of in the academy and then eventually out of the world. Is it the case that this kind of education leads to greater employment opportunities and less crime? Yes. Th- these are the kinds of arguments, you know, that one raises. Fairness, I don't think, has the ability to do the job. So 
in that sense, I think um, my argument doesn't really cut one way or the other. It's not ju- it's not a conservative argument. It's not a liberal argument. I think it's above that sort of faction that those sort of factional orientations. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what I'm up to in the book. Yeah, I mean that's very interesting. Let me ask you about one more contemporary. I don't know if to call it a movement or feeling or something like this. There's a lot of talk in the United States suddenly about, and I say suddenly because um, as a historian, I know that it, it is a, it's relatively recent. I mean, it has happened previously in our history about income inequality or wealth inequality. Yeah. So we have this movement about the 99%. We are the 99%. Um, how, how do you, uh, you know, and, and again, I mean, I think that there's a notion here that somehow that is unfair, that mm-hmm. you know, a few people have a lot of stuff, and 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 most people don't have as much stuff. Not to say they're impoverished. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good. That's a good example. You know, I in in terms of preferences, we we tend to think, well, all preferential treatment is bad. And my argument is that some of it is good and some of it is bad. The way in which you determine that is with you know um, uh, what what I would call practical judgment. And in the case of the 99%, I, I think it's bad to have preferential treatment for the 1%. You know, um, I think policies that protect the, the wealthy are, in fact, bad um, preferential treatments because we can show that in the larger scheme uh, of the social world, this will be unhealthy for the body politic. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, President Obama, Obama when, when he was campaigning, was referring to the GI Bill that his grandfather got. And there, his grandfather got preferential treatment uh, because he had been a vet. And here's a case where preferential treatment is obviously good. And we 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 can make the difference. We can assess and make a judgment. When I look at the sort of Occupy Wall Street movement, um, I see that it's been cashed out in terms of fairness. But if you look more deeply, there's so many more interesting things happening. Like young people are entering the workplace. I teach you know students who are right right in this age range, and they're entering uh, an, an economy where the the, the American dream really isn't there for them like it was in the past. And so they have a whole bunch of objections. Some of them are just, you know, is this sort of um, economic disparity uh, and inequality? Some of it is just, um, I don't want to play this game anymore of just uh, capitalistic uh, success is, you know, my success is premised on my, my wealth quotient. Uh, you see people trying to uh, avoid that kind of rat race. So it's, I think that whole issue is very complex and it gets reduced down to fairness. I also think there are people who things haven't gone the way they want. And as a result of it, fairness comes to the rescue. Uh, we have a kind of, uh, we have a victim culture that says, well, if my life hasn't turned out the way I wanted it to, there must be somebody else who's to blame. And we ha- that's fairly strong in our culture, too. And that and fairness comes to the rescue to those people because it feels like, okay, well, all the, car- all the cars were against me. Um, so I can, I can basically re- relieve myself of, of, of culpability on this and just you know, give myself over to a culture of complaint. And, and I think we live in that world as well. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask about uh, again to refer to the ninety nine percent and all that. Um, one of the things you say in the book is that a lot of these things are driven by envy. That is a um, that is quite a claim, and I imagine it ruffled some feathers. Can you talk a, a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think uh, you know envy is uh, one of those common 
uh, human emotions. And what's interesting about it is um, psychologists have studied it, and even before psychologists, some great philosophers, including some old timers like Aquinas, <laughs> no- noticed uh, they noticed that um, envy is strongest when your neighbor has just a little more than you. Um, and that brings out this response in us very strong. I I think it's kind of funny. I don't know whether it's entirely true, but it's amusing. Like, I, if I think about Bill Gates, I think, like, <laughs> that's so out of the stratosphere <laughs> of my realm of possibilities that it, 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 ha- it produces no emotional response in me at all. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, if somebody asks me, you know, do you want to have Bill Gates wealth? It's like saying, you know, do you want to fly to Jupiter and, and back. It, it seems very cartoonish almost. But I remember walking around um, uh, neighborhoods in Chicago uh, when my son was first born, we would go on these walks. And I remember thinking I had this kind of funny experience where <laughs> I would walk to these wealthy neighborhoods that had um, these beautiful, expansive front porches. And uh, for some, for whatever reason, like I've always fantasized about having a nice porch that I could kick my feet up yeah. <laughs> on and read. And I, I remember walking around like for hours, and nobody would ever be on these porches. Right. And I just thought, how you know these porches were mocking me. <laughs> Here were these wealthy people who could afford an, a, a beautiful porch. Why can't I just have a porch? You know, is it too much to ask to have a front porch? Uh, and this kind, of, I realized, you know, I was sort of laughing at myself because it's a fairly um, you know, idiosyncratic and weird kind of piece of envy, but um, all of us are operating this way. We see the world as um, in a judgmental way. My neighbor has so many more things. If I if I take this position, my neighbor has so many more things I can be envious of. Uh, and in a way, I think the culture based on consumerism has fed into our envy impulse. Like you can imagine a different cultural context that wasn't based on uh, consumerism and envy probably wouldn't crop up as much, although I think it's inevitable and it's human Mm -hmm. nature. But we're surrounded by images. Don't you want this? Don't you want that? Isn't this amazing? Isn't this sexy? Um, And so people are in this constant state of, uh, you know, um, excitement about what they might be able to experience or own. And envy is sort of just is just the experience of not being um, satisfied. Mm -hmm. And we talked about Buddhism uh, a little bit. You know, this is what the Buddha says. He's like, look. All life is suffering, and by that he means all life is uh, unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. Like you have many more desires uh, than you will ever be able to um, fulfill or satisfy. So if you live the life of trying to satisfy those desires, you are basically pouring – it's like pouring water into a glass that has no bottom. Mm -hmm. It will never be satisfied, and you will always be tortured by your sense of unfairness or, or envy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really wanted to get to just this point because this is something that actually uh, Tocqueville pointed out when he came to America. You knew he came from a, a, a society in which people had places and he knew his place and it was enough. Right. Americans, he said, don't understand enough. They live in a constant state of insufficiency. They are never enough. And it just seems to me that this mentality kind of stands behind our immediate grasp for fairness. When we don't get everything we want, we say it is unfair because we believe we are insufficient. Is there any way to 
fight against this? I mean, short of becoming a Buddhist monk or I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that it rules my life to some degree, but when I, when I did study Buddhism and, and also in another context, when I studied people that really emphasize gratitude for the things you have and the notion of a kind of baseline sufficiency, that it was a kind of mind blowing to me. Yeah, I I think um, we like you said, Buddhism is a is it a sort of alternative, but it's it's a full time job in yeah. a way. <laughs> um, but the other, the sort of more uh, homegrown version, really uh, from the West, is Stoicism. Yeah, Stoicism, right? Yeah, and I don't. It's sort of sad to me as a philosopher that Stoicism just um, fell out of the curriculum. And so I don't think the average American knows much about it, and even the professional philosopher has studied very little of it, it, maybe none of it at all. But it really does speak to this issue that we're talking about, which is what what is it like to live in a world where you have many more desires um, than you have possibilities to fulfill them, and that is a recipe for excruciating uh, disappointment and dissatisfaction. So here's how you can fix it. You, you, since you can't rearrange the whole world to uh, meet your needs, um, not even not even the wealthiest kings can do that. Then what you can do is just uh, reshape your mind mm-hmm. so that it doesn't have these same expectations um, and unrealistic. Uh, desires. So in in Stoicism, I love the fact that they're they're constantly telling. Like if you look at um, Marcus Aurelius or Seneca, you see them giving you all kinds of these of great like thought experiments. So when you're whenever you're feeling disappointed, you know they'll say like, "Well, imagine j- just sit down and imagine how many ways this could be so much worse." Right. And then you'll start to feel better about it. Right. And also the idea that. Um, to try to uh, treat your misfortunes in a way that, you know, Buddhists talk about detachment. The Stoics say, you know, you should tr- treat your misfortunes as if they are not personal. And the the tendency we have is to think, well, you know, when things go badly for me, uh, you know, the, the, the my neighbor's against me, the world is against me, um, are, and adopt sort of this victim posture. And the Stoics said, you know, look, you, you have to think about um, the world almost like a series of causes that, that really don't care about you. Mm-hmm. And once you get over yourself in that way, that self-important notion, you begin, you'll basically suffer less. So I think there's there are alternatives, but they're they're hard to come by. Yeah, and I don't think we really have any of them in the Western tradition. The closest I can think of is, you know, there is a place in the Book of Common Prayer, for example, that, that says, you know, when you feel bad, think about dying. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and so right. yeah, that that kind of works, you know. And Buddhists <laughs> also say that, you know, meditate on your own death. There you'll feel right. better now. Um, <laughs> but you know, generally speaking, we're just taught to, um, you know, our lives are competitions, and we're out there to beat somebody in a kind of zero sum way. And, yeah. and I think this is, uh, you know, as I say, you, you are not going to, you know, as, as a friend of mine likes to say, you will never be king of the world. <laughs> you, it will not happen. And so if you have this, you know, go around in life trying to beat everybody and everything, that is just a recipe for psychological disaster. I think that's right. Yeah. And I mean, but it suffuses our culture in such an interesting way that I can, you know, and it goes well beyond laws and, you know, voting mechanisms and racial equality or inequality. It just suffuses our daily life. And, you know, I mentioned my, you know, my son, I mean, I can see it happening to him. We go to Target and he sees these things and he feels insufficient. You know, I right. need these things and, and I, there's nothing I can do about it. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, and I, like you said, especially in a culture where uh, we have so much stuff, <laughs> prosperity. When I, when I was living in um, Cambodia, I was uh, I was at a friend's house, and she was Khmer, and I was watching her family. She she had this is a sort of interesting point. She had like three generations. This is cl- typical in Cambodian societies. Uh, you have three generations in the same house. You have the kids running around in the backyard. You have the parents, and then the grandparents are all there too. And the kids are basically playing with. They're so poor, they're playing with a a kid's sandal. They don't even have a ball. They're just throwing the sandal around and playing like a weird sandal soccer. And I said to her, because she had, had visited the West, I said, you know, in, in the States, kids have these amazing, you know, digital games, you know, uh, they can sit down and go into these game worlds and play. And her position was, yeah, I've seen those and they're, they're amazing. But look at um, all these kids are playing together. And that doesn't happen as much, you know, when they're on these devices and you have this wealth and prosperity and you have a culture of acquisition, that stuff basically, it's not that it's sort of inherently evil, but it prevents other things from happening, Mm -hmm. like the kind of social life that her kids were having. And I think that's, uh, you know, to your point, um, we're living in a, in a world where acquisition is really important, but in Buddhist countries, the more stuff you have, the more um, unhappy you are. So they try to actually. This is not always true, you know. I'm, so this is sort of an ideal, and it, it it's in reality to varying degrees. But the idea is that um, your stuff just weighs you down. So if you could basically get rid of it uh, uh, or detach from it, you'll be better off. Yeah. When I was in my early twenties, I was on my about fifth car. I'd bite these these junkers, you know, and I was. I finally, when I think I was 21 or 22, I just said, these are a hassle. And I just didn't buy another car. And I didn't, I didn't drive a car for 20 years. I was like, until I had kids, really. I was like, I'm done with this. This is a hassle. I, it's like too much for me. Right. Um, but, so, but I mean, one thing that's interesting to me, and this is a kind of broader theme, but it, it does touch on what you're saying is kind of, you know, our, our, our culture of acquisition and competition got us this far, but we have in the United States at least, and again, I'm, uh, sympathetic to the fact that there are people that are extraordinarily poor and perhaps hungry and sick, we've reached a state of basically of material sufficiency. Um, I mean, I was talking to a person just a few weeks ago who was, you know, he he had written a, a book about, um, you know, John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s said, well, you know, we're all going to become very wealthy and we're going to work a lot less. Mm-hmm. But see, that right. didn't happen. We didn't work right. a lot less. We just became more wealthy. And it seems to me that, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't know how to explain to people, and nor do I know in my own life how to realize this notion of of kind of inner sufficiency that this is enough, and right. I don't need to feel that things are unfair anymore because I have everything a person needs. Yeah, it's a good it's a good point. In the book, I tell this b- real brief story about how. Um, you know, a lot of people will think in terms of larger social policies, particularly people on the right tend to think in, in terms of productivity. Well, we're not going to be competitive and we have to sort of ratchet up productivity. And I, I get that. I understand that. But I was looking at a case where uh, Chinese uh, factory workers, basically uh, management had built a factory in this little town in it, northern Italy, a textile, a fam- famous for sort of textiles. And they basically then a bunch of Chinese had immigrated there and they started working in the region. And the locals live according to the Italian lifestyle, which is, you know, you, you take your... Um, 
you know, midday break and you're, you're out for a few hours, siesta culture, and you come back and you work reasonable, but then you go home and, and are with your family and all that. And the Chinese workers come in and they, of course, being sort of extremely hardworking and uh, all the rest of it, they, they have, they're coming from this very different culture. They, they never take a break and they just work these long, ridiculous hours and their productivity goes through the roof. And so many people look at, well, look, in this competitive world, the, the Chinese are outstripping the Italians in their own, at their own game. And I look at this and say, well, this sounds horrible to me. Mm-hmm. And give me the siesta culture and the low productivity right. any, any any day of the week. Um, so I, I think that's another unfortunate consequence of having um, acquisition-based culture um, and this sort of um, approach towards towards life that is, is very, very cost-benefit. I think that whole logic loses what I would call these more existential meanings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I agree with you completely. I am... Uh, a big capitalist, and I bet I'm much more conservative than you are, and I fully accept the fact that capitalism has gotten us a long way. It's lifted billions of people out of poverty, and it will continue to do so. But I guess my question is, what is the next stage in the evolution of personhood when personhood is no longer defined as somebody that increases productivity? Right. That is, is there anything beyond that? And I don't really, you know, Buddhism is attractive to me, and and and, um, and Stoicism is attractive to me, but I guess I'm sort of the generation or the position in history where I've been brought up and I can't work my way out of this because I'm still bothered by fairness a lot. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, I still have these reflexive sort of notions toward fairness. When I see something that doesn't appear to treat equals equally, it, it gets on my nerves. And especially when I feel like I've been treated um, unfairly in air quotes, you know, it just sends me into a – it creates resentments is what it does. Yeah. It just makes yeah. my world full of resentments. And then I go about trying to try to fix it. And then it gets me even more trouble. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know the the thing that uh, one of the things I look at in the book is the way in which um, bias and favoritism is actually more will possibly contribute better to happiness. So I look at happiness, and you know, from the ancients to the contemporary psychologists who are now studying you know positive psychology and happiness, what you find is something that we f- oftentimes forget, which is so- close social bonds are invariably the the key ingredient to the happy life, as reported by people who report that they're happy. Yeah, right. um, and as a result of that, and you know, we live in a society where those bonds aren't as cultivated as they should be, in my mind. Um, and then alternative to that, sort of building, we, we, we live in a world where we have virtual friendships on Facebook yeah. rather than doing the hard work of an actual tribe mm-hmm. with, you know, your actual friends. That costs a lot. That's costly. The benefits, though, are tremendous. And so I think that's a pathway that's non-acquisition, that's not about fairness, that does lead to greater happiness. And then just quickly, I would add one last thing, which is I w- it would be great if our culture um, emphasized uh, creativity more, not the way it does now, which is, you know, you know, you have singing competitions on reality television, but I mean, I mean, real creativity, the, the, the hard won development of skills and crafts that then can be turned into, um, artworks or products or, and I don't, you know, I don't mean mass made products. I mean, stuff you make, Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a life path that I think would be much more rewarding than, than the one that many of us are, 
are pursuing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the difficulties is demonstration is we just, I don't at least, well, let me put that differently. I, I do, I'm a member of a, a spiritual community, let's put it that way, and, and I do see people who have uh, checked their competitive tendencies and do not think a lot about fairness and they yeah. think much more about everything that they have and how they can be of benefit to each other. And I, mm. and I do admire those people, and I want to be one of them. But it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard not to look at that car and say, God damn, I really want that car. I've got to get a job, man. I'm going to buy that car, you know, which is very hard. And, uh, you know, and giving up your resentments, I mean, once you've decided that somebody's treated you unfairly, that is like, uh, you know, that's more difficult than heart surgery. You've got to go into your brain and excise that thing. It's really hard. And the other thing is, is they give you meaning. I mean, when you have a bunch of enemies out there and people that have done you wrong, uh, they g- it gives uh, you yeah. meaning in life, right? I'm yeah. fighting. And Americans love to fight. You know, yeah. We're fighting for equality. We're fighting for uh, racial justice and social justice. We're fighting imperialism. We're fighting. And, yeah. you know, fighting is not a really very good way to live your life. No, that, yeah, those are... Those are good points. I mean, uh, all I would say is the, those spiritual traditions um, and even the Stoicism example we were talking about earlier, they all acknowledge that the default position, that the fallback position will be, you know, envy and resentment. Mm-hmm. And you just have to like daily work on <laughs> reminding yourself sort of these little mechanisms to get you to remember to appreciate what you have rather than pursue. And so I, I totally agree with you. It's very hard, very difficult, but then, you know, that's everything worth doing is hard and difficult. Yeah. I mean, um, I, 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 you know, the, the spiritual tradition that I'm a part of requires that I take an hour every day. Now, believe me, when I started this, and this is many years ago, I couldn't conceive of it. I thought there is no way I'm spending an hour a day not working or not uh-huh. doing something productive. Uh-huh. Now I'm happy to say that I can actually do it and I enjoy it and I look forward to it. But I got to tell you at first, it was, uh, I'm just like, there's no way I have 60 minutes every day to do this. Right. <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's, it's, uh, I, it's worked its way into my life, but it was hard coming. And I think one thing that bears mentioning here is that, um, if you are the kind of person that does want to uh, uh, not have their lives dominated by fairness, that you, it really is a practice like you practice your golf swing. Right. You can't just think about it. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I think in many ways, uh, fairness, uh, our, our problems with fairness are not just cognitive. They're deeply emotional. And the only way to retrain the emotions is practice. Like you actually have to do new habits mm-hmm. um the, the best way to get uh mitigate or ameliorate a negative emotion is to try to re- to push it out of the way with a positive one mm-hmm. you, you don't just sort of talk to yourself in your head and get an emotion to sort of die down that a, a little bit that happens there is some cognitive control mm-hmm. but a better way to and we recognize this you know when you're feeling really awful it's much better to go for a walk than it is to sort of uh, just think about it and 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 just sort of ruminate on it. Um, so I think that's right. In the case of fairness, if we think about it as uh, tied to these emotional engines like um, resentment and envy uh, and desire, um, then we should also think about well, how can we get ourselves into um, habits that would trigger better emotions or would assuage some of these negatives. Yeah, and I'll be much more critical. I mean, the the religious traditions that I was brought up in don't have any of this. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sorry to say. I mean, maybe they do now. It's been a long time since I went to Holy Cross Lutheran Church, but um, when I went there, they didn't do any of this. 
Uh, right. And, and, and I had to find it someplace else. I mean, the, the spiritual community I'm involved in is uh, sort of Christian-based. It's true, but um, it is about practice. As a friend of mine says, we all say in this particular group, you will not think your way to a better life. Yeah, that you sounds just, right to you me. You will not think your way to a better life. Um, so let me let me let me ask one more kind of um, critical question, and that is that I, I know that in my own life, in in trying to fight against my mania for fairness, uh, I, I've discovered that on a personal level, it works pretty well. That in my daily interactions with people, where my sort of fairness monitor goes off, I can turn it off. I can I can kind of dampen it, but. It, it seems to me that applying these principles that is favoring favoritism or promoting or encouraging cultivating favoritism and this sort of tribal mentality doesn't work very well on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think I fully acknowledge that there's a major problem with um, ratcheting up what is essentially a kind of tribal favoritism that I'm promoting to the level of nation state or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I acknowledge that this may not be possible. I I simply don't know. Really, my book is more the question than it is the answer. I think we haven't been talking about this at all in any serious way. So if we get it like we're doing now, I'm I'm happy. Um, I don't think it's impossible. There are many ways in which um, biased behaviors and uh, practices do, in fact, have larger social uh, benefits. For example, you know, if we, if uh, if mothers tr- tried to take care of all children that needed mothering, then nobody would be properly mothered. Mm-hmm. Instead, what you do is you, because it's such an intensive investment in one or two or three kids or what, however many it is, that you just do that as well as you can. And if every mother did their own mothering yeah. <laughs> the best, then the world would be a better place. So you see the logic is that the larger consequence could, could happen mm-hmm. in these scenarios. Mm-hmm. But I also acknowledge, and this is why I like uh, political philosophers like Isaiah Berlin, that at some point you may just have to choose um, I'd like to be both a good citizen and a good brother. But if I can't be both, then I choose to be a good brother. Mm-hmm. That's that you may just have a value conflict, a pluralistic values that actually rule each other out. And in those cases, you have to decide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the uh, that's life. Right yeah, there. That, right. that is life on its own terms, as we say. You're going to you're going to have to make decisions like that. And it's it's difficult. Well, I have to say this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation and I could go on and on and on with you. Um, but let me close with a traditional question that we ask on these shows. And that is, uh, Stephen, what are you working on now? Oh, I am trying to uh, work up a, a book project that it's been sort of in the back of my mind for a while. And um, I'm trying to write a natural history of the imagination. Hmm. And I, a few years ago, I wrote a sort of a unnatural history of monsters, and uh, I like sort of looking at these big ideas. But now I've been, I've found a way, I think, to marry my interests in evolution with my cultural interests, and I'd like to look at the imagination not just as okay, here's the cultures of imagination, but what are the evolutionary prerequisites for uh, Homo sapiens to be so creative and solve problems in the way they do. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in that. That's what I'm working on currently. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. I mean, it, it bears on lots of things. It I does. Mean, I, one that immediately occurs to me is that if we're mechanisms, which I kind of think we are, uh, how do we invent new things? 
<laughs> See, right. that's like, yeah. what, what do you do with that? <laughs> I don't know. Right. I don't yeah. know. My toaster never invented anything new. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we've been talking with Stephen Asma about his terrific book, Against Fairness. Uh, I'm Marshall Poe, the uh, editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank, thank everyone for listening, and I want to thank Stephen for being on the show. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Marshall. It's been a pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.